Hello there, friends. Kendra here. I am very excited to announce that we have released a brand new design for our special theme for 2021, which is Read the World. So my friend Vanessa created this gorgeous Reclaim the Bookshelf Read the World design, and we have put that design on sweatshirts, tanks, t-shirts, mugs, and totes, and so much more in a wide range of colors, styles, and sizes, so you all can go there and find the perfect piece of merch just for you. So you can head to bonfire slash door slash reading woman, or you can go check out the show notes where there will be a link for you and you can order those as you so desire. I have ordered a maroon sweatshirt, which I'm very excited about considering I live in the South, but I am still cold 24 seven, 365 days a year. So I cannot wait till that arrives. So you can go check that out. Again, the link is in the show notes and you can find more information um, there in the store or you can go check out our social media. We will be posting about it a lot. So I hope you go check that out and uh, support Reading Women. We greatly appreciate it. And yeah, all right. Now back to your regularly scheduled episode. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim the bookshelf and read the world. Today, I'm talking to Kristen Arnett about her novel, With Teeth, which is out now from Riverhead. You can find a complete transcript of this conversation over on our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Now, every summer, I love to read two things. One is super messy family novels, and the other is very long nonfiction books. Uh, This definitely qualifies as a messy family novel. In Kristen Arnett's second novel, With Teeth, we have Monica and Sammy, who are married, and they have a son named Samson. And as they try to be a mom to Samson, they come up against all sorts of things as they try to parent their son and figure out how to still make time for themselves and so many other different things that come along with being a family. And one of the things I really appreciate about Kristen Arnett's work is that she looks at queer folks in uh, Central Florida primarily. And so I really love how she captures place and also the messiness of the realities of everyday life. So as soon as I heard that she had a book out this summer, I knew I wanted to talk to her. (laughs) All right. So a little bit about Kristen Arnett before we jump into our conversation. Kristen Arnett is the author of With Teeth and the New York Times bestselling debut novel, Mostly Dead Things, which was out from Tin House in 2019. And Mostly Dead Things was also a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Fiction. She has had writing in a slew of different publications, including the New York Times, Guernica, BuzzFeed, Electric Literature, McSweeney's, uh, Gulf Coast, The Normal School, and so many other bylines and accolades. Her next book, an untitled collection of short stories, will be published by Riverhead Books. She has a master's in library and information science from Florida State University and currently lives in Miami, Florida. All right, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Kristen Arnett. (laughs) 
welcome to the podcast, Kristen. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. I feel very honored to be here. I appreciate it. I've been very excited to chat with you. I had you on my list at the beginning of the year. Like I need, I need to talk to her about this book for a wide range of reasons that we'll get into. But this is your your second novel, and you're heading into it. It's I imagine it must be a pretty different coming out with a second book, but also a second book with a different publisher. So how has all that been for you while also a pandemic yes. has been going on, you know, in the background, just a little detail. Yeah, it's been, it's been wildly different and some things actually still the same, but I, guess, I think the things that are the same are, there's just something about putting out a book, no matter where you are in your career, that just instills like this, like mounting sense of panic. Like no matter what, like I, I know that with uh, Mostly Dead Things, it was uh, my first novel and it was with Ten House and they were so great about everything. I just loved working with them um, and they made everything so easy and fun, but it still was this sense of like, oh, this big thing is coming and it's going to be like a thing that I feel ill prepared for no matter how much I'm preparing for it. Um, and so much of that too is like all the tour stuff was in person. Um, it was like going and meeting people or even doing even some interview stuff, like flying somewhere. Yeah. Like way less video. Like, I don't know, like like zoom boom happened, like pretty much like, right. Like right after like March, 2020, I feel like. And so it's a thing where I I have really enjoyed it uh, that I having that, I mean, I am a librarian also. So there's this idea of accessibility now that comes with um, like being able to like share literary events or like panels or like conferences, workshops and stuff where it's like, there were like people and for a long time, myself included, that couldn't do that stuff. So like a book tour for this new book with a different publisher, that's like, um, like a bigger publishing house has felt like strange and new, but not necessarily always in a bad way. It feels like exciting because it's like a new way to interact with people that maybe wouldn't be able to come out to things otherwise, or wouldn't maybe be able to see or have access to things, but it's still the same (laughs) level of panic (laughs) attached. I think it's like, I guess it's like um, a little like coming out just as a queer person where it's like, it's not just one time it's over and over again with the same kind of stress attached to it. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a little of that maybe. <laughs> well, I'm really excited for your book to to be out in the world. I am so excited to to read a book about queer women in the South. I've read a review this morning and it described your book as confidently messy. And I was like, that is perfect. You know, to a friend, I was like dude, you have to read this book. It Like the, the family and the kid who's like maybe possessed, <laughs> not really, but sometimes I felt that way. And I was like, it's like a train wreck. And there was like silence. I was like, no, no, like an excellent train wreck. Like one you cannot look away from. It's just that good. And <laughs> I feel like confidently messy is a much better descriptor than, than maybe I was going for. But I like both, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we can combine them and do like a confident train wreck. Oh, I like, love that. Yes. You know, uh-huh. together. Yeah. I want that to be like a description of myself even. <laughs> Put on t-shirts. Yeah. It can be part of your tour, you know. <laughs> you get some branding of like the cover with it. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about like the vibe of this book and going into this book because it is about this queer family and they're just, I don't know, some wild dynamics that they have that still feel very real at the same time. 
going into your second book with something like this, did you find it particularly challenging in like a new way? And, and what was that like for you? It was challenging in that like, um, Mostly Dead Things is a book that was very much about grief and kind of that trajectory of like everybody in a family who is also messy, just because I think families are inherently messy, Mm -hmm. but like how all those people within that family deal with grief in the myriad different ways that people deal with grief. This is a book that is more so about discomfort. And so sitting inside this book while writing it was like a real um, roller coaster, I feel like, because it was one of those books where I was deeply like enmeshed and embedded in like the things that Sammy was choosing to do in her family and like the interactions that she was having in her household. But I also was like consistently stressed out by them. (laughs) I was like, I wanted to be a a book about discomfort, but I also really wanted it to be a book that was very much about the idea that everybody in a household is an unreliable narrator. Like, right. Like everybody in a household um, shares stories, you know, like we, like growing up in any household, however it's built, like no matter who the members are of that household, like we all share like stories around like holidays or birthdays or that time that this thing happened, like stories and narratives that everybody shares. But then they all touch at a certain point, but like no matter who you ask in the family, it gets told to you in a different way. I mean, part of that is being told through a different perspective, but I think it's genuinely the idea of like, this is the truth and everybody's truth in a household is like diverges from each other quite often. So I wanted it to be a book that like really explores a lot of that, but specifically through a person who is a queer mom and feels like she doesn't have a lot of like queer community anymore. And so like the ways that she's able to accurately view herself or what's going on around her are maybe being pulled in different directions that like aren't necessarily accurate all the time, but then maybe sometimes are and have that question be like, you know, what what kind of things are like truth and what's like not true. And also like more importantly to me, cause I'm always more interested in the area in the middle, like what is the gray area? And like, how, like how does that live in that kind of mess, especially in families that are like queer families that that felt really important to me to work on so it was like um, a very different kind of thing because so much of mostly dead things was like a research book book up front right like all the taxidermy and like looking into those things like this was a very inward kind of book for me where I really had to sit with like discomfort while like working on it and also because I am a person that wants to make jokes a lot of the time and I want to have any book I'm writing like kind of infused with a certain kind of humor the idea that like discomfort in itself can be very funny and like how uncomfortable can I make a situation and still get like glean some kind of like sense of humor from it like even like some kind of kernel and that was that was fun but it was like also very stressful (laughs) yeah yeah every time the family would sit down to eat anything and they do this several times over the course of the book I always like felt very unsettled and like, oh my word, what's going to happen this time? These these people just, they struggle to communicate over food. I don't know what it is. And so I feel like that kind of culminates in a dinner scene closer to the end of the book, which I won't mention for spoiler reasons, but um, I just love dinner scenes and their ability to communicate so much about characters in such a very concise way. Yeah. So I really, I really love that those aspects of the book. And you mentioned uh, Sammy; she's our, our viewpoint character. You wanted to write about the whole family. Was she always your viewpoint character? And did you have plans to include other perspectives? Yeah, she always was who I saw things going through because this book was bought off of like seventy pages. Um, and then you know, like my editor Cal at Riverhead was like, "So can you tell me what's going to happen?" And I'm like, "No." I was like, "I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
it was like a, a viewpoint where I'd written that first like 70 pages and like where we were in time. Cause this is a book that also takes place like through seasons, I feel like of like a child's life. And I was like, so much of it is really required to kind of build this kind of sense of like belief or disbelief. And I didn't necessarily feel as though slipping into like Monica, her wife's head or into Samson, her son's head would even make that much of a difference other than to reveal like none of them are telling the same stories. And what I thought would be more interesting to me would to be have these little interstitials put throughout of perspectives from people who don't live in the household, right? They're not attached to this narrative. They maybe have been like stuck with the family from like one point in time, right? Like, is it like a therapist? Is it a teacher? Is it like somebody they ran into at a grocery store parking lot? Like who is this person and how have they like kind of witnessed how this household functions or doesn't function? And I think that's like maybe a clearer sense of like what a family is actually like portraying and also sometimes like the least clear. Um, but I, I did think it would be like one that was like unbiased because I think Sammy herself is specifically pretty biased in a way that like sometimes she doesn't realize like she's able to kind of fool herself in these kind of ways or like make um, like an analysis of herself and of situations that are like not taking into account like everybody else's analysis yeah. of the situation. Yeah, she was very interesting to kind of sit with because part of you just wants to be like, what are you doing? Like you're like screaming at the book or you're like, <laughs> why do you think this is okay? Uh, I, I don't think it's a spoiler early on to mention that uh, Samson, their son, uh, ends up biting Sammy and she bites him back, and then that becomes, like, this thing that he almost can blackmail her with. Like, if he tells them, and she has this whole moment where she's terrified that Samson is going to tell Monica, like, what happened and all this, then you have, like, the scar kind of reminds her of her, like, own struggles in parenting. And I feel like that really set the tone for the book and Sammy's struggle with being a queer parent. And I imagine that must have been an immense topic to, like, jump into because uh, queer parenting is I don't think I've seen that many people write on this very fraught dynamic part of it that you you cover in the book which is part of it what I think makes it so engrossing yeah I mean it was very important to me because like the the impulse for this book um, came from really thinking about um, queer community specifically in central Florida like you know um, about like you know what kind of community there, there is there. Um, and even just like in terms of just queer community, like spaces and like places that are specifically just LGBTQ plus, there's just really not any, which is completely at odds with the idea. Like, like Florida is very much a destination spot for tourism. So we have all the theme parks, you know, I'm from Orlando. So it's like, we have everybody coming there to like work there for Disney or Universal or any of the big theme parks. And like a lot of those people are queer that are coming in to work and live there. And we just have a lot of people like locally that are queer and there's not like a corresponding amount of queer spaces for them. So it's this idea of kind of like the queer community that is there is large, but there's not like spaces for them. And it's not this kind of way in which anything is defined other than being like, there's some gay people I know, you know? And so I was like, okay, so what if this is like your queer community? And then like, what if it's, you're a mom or like you, you and your partner get married and you have this kind of heteronormative kind of traditional relationship where you decided to raise a child. And what does that look like in this queer space where really the only things that are there for you are like a couple nightclubs and like a bar and the group of friends you have, like, 
it's like would not be a community space for you anymore. And what would that be to feel like your community is like steadily decreasing to the point where you feel very alone and also like you don't know what you're doing because there's like no model or frame of reference. And the secondary part was that I was talking on the phone, like when the beginning stages of writing this book to like an editor friend and they live in Brooklyn. I was like describing like kind of what I was thinking about this in terms of plot. And they were like, well, why wouldn't um, Sammy just join like a gay mom group? And I was like, in Orlando, <laughs> like, that's just not a thing. I mean, and I think that that might be like a thing where it's like, right, Florida is like a red conservative state and plenty of states in the South, um, the Southeast are also, you know, and there's just, along with that stuff comes with this idea of like moral responsibility and that meaning that there's not spaces that are necessarily queer friendly or even just queer. So what does that look like when it's like in terms of the structure of being like, you know, the only spaces available to me that that are like mom groups or parenting groups are ones that don't really want me there. And I feel like I have to model myself over and like, I don't feel like I belong anywhere and I don't know what I'm doing. And hey, maybe I'm really bad at this and I don't like it. And I don't have support from anybody and I feel like completely isolated. And so it became a book for me that became a book that felt... And I wanted it to feel very claustrophobic. Like Mostly Dead Things, my last book was a book that feels very open and like very outdoors and very like escaping into the wild or the wild coming into your own home even. And with teeth is a different kind of thing because I was like, this is like through the eyes of a person who whose world has like shrunk and shrunk and shrunk to the point where her entire life is her wife, who she feels like doesn't listen or see her anymore. Her son, who she feels like she doesn't have this kind of connection with. She is at home and she kind of has like a work from home job, but not really like the majority of her life is moving this child from like one thing to the next. So it's like, it's her in the house, getting him ready to go somewhere. They're in the car. She sees the outside world, like only through the window as it's like kind of smearing past the glass as she's driving her son either to school or to therapy or to some kind of sports thing. And then it's like to a grocery and then like maybe home and that's it. And so like the world, like really kind of closing in in a way that would feel like, like every option starts to feel less and less. I don't have enough people. I don't have anyone to talk to. Nobody understands what I'm going through. So the kind of ways in which even that this character is like exacerbates the worst qualities of her, I think, which is deeply human and the kind of thing I'm like very interested in, like the messy ways that like we behave and choose to react. So like when she and Samson get into that thing where they bite each other, like, right, that could have gone a number of ways, right? I used to do... um story time at the public library for like eight years and you'd see these moms with their kids when the kids would be like at their like most because I won't even say worst because I think kids are just like being a lot um I don't think necessarily they're being like bad I just think that they just are chaos embodied in like a little you know flesh suit so like you know they'll be a lot and you can see the mom have this look on their face where it's like on the cusp of breaking you know you can see them kind of like you know you know when the kid like hits them or like you know, screams in their face or does something with like some kind of spitting or like, yeah, sometimes biting. And the look on like a parent's face being like, man, I wish I could bite you. Like, I feel upset and mad right now. And obviously like they don't, but like, what is that impulse to be like, well, I'm going to do it to you. I'm doing it back to you. And then having that happen and then being like her impulse not to be like to her partner, to the woman she's married to. This thing happened, pull over, like we had this interaction, this like really weird struggle and like, let's talk about this. And there's like some shit going on. Like, obviously I just bit our kid who bit me. Like, let's figure out what's going on with this. But instead her impulse, cause she's like so constricted in her mind and has like let all of her like worst 
worst way she can behave, like push forward to the forefront is to like take on this idea that she's in a constant power struggle with um, an elementary school aged child, which is like not a thing that's like, like, right. It's like a little, like, uh, there's like a little bit of neurosis there that's happening with that. Like her choosing to like, okay, I'm going to engage in this in a kind of way that like put pits us against each other or like in like a constant, like power struggle and not like I'm a parent and like I am overwhelmed and like what is happening here is like I feel like it's veering out of control and I need to like reach out and talk to somebody and I was like what if it like is just internalized 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 to a point where it's like it's impossible to kind of claw out of that <laughs> I hope that sounds fun for readers <laughs> <laughs> oh I I think a lot of people coming out you know, slowly as people are more vaccinated, uh, a better understanding of what it might be like to only be in the same space with your family for an extended period of time. And that's kind of what I felt with the book. And I really liked what you said and what you have in the book about how Sammy's lack of queer community affects her experience with parenting specifically. It made me, it was very thought provoking because also you see her trying to grapple with her own parents who she no longer talks to. And so she not only doesn't have a model of parenting when it's, you know, the heteronormative man, woman, right? but also she doesn't have a queer model. And so she's kind of making this up as she goes along. And, and sometimes the things she makes up are not really acceptable <laughs> parenting choices. Yeah. I do think it's like a thing that's like very much just even in queerness is like kind of looking for things. Like I know that that's why so many of us, like when we were first coming out, like we're like scrambling. Cause it also like queerness, like is like almost like delayed adolescence a lot of time for people yeah. because you spend so much of your youth trying to hide the fact that you're queer. I mean, I can't speak for everybody, but I think a lot of people who, um, like, you know, went through that, like, or like, you know, you're like, you spend a lot of time being like, how can I make it so people don't see what is like, internally, I feel is different about me and is not matching up with the people around me. And like, you like model yourself around the kind of heteronormativity that's around you. Even if it doesn't feel good, it feels good enough to know it's your kind of like, blending in this kind of way. And then when you come out, it's like, I don't know, especially I was like, when I was coming out, I was like, there was no, like, I was like, there's nothing for me to look at. I don't know any other queer people. Like, I don't know anything. I mean, what was there to look at that was like, in terms of like gay culture? I think that's why so many people even still cling and don't get me wrong. I love the L word, but it's like, right. So like cling to something like the L word as, as like, you know, here's, here's an experience, like mapped out. And I was like, here's what gay people were like. And we all know that's not true, you know? But it, there's like a reason that that's the thing because there's like so little framework or the idea that like lesbian stereotypes kind of still have like a foothold, like the idea of you hauling or like, you know, like turkey basters or like jokes about like weird things with boundaries and consent. And like those things are like realistic, but some of the time I think it's because like in this kind of scrambling need or kind of fixation on like, what is the culture? Like, what is our culture? There's this way in which those things that are cliches become like elements of truth because we're looking for some kind of like, here's like a history or here's like what things are. And yeah, I think like working in parenthood in this book, especially if you're like in a relationship where there's already communication issues and there's communication issues, like definitely in this relationship between the two of them, because Sammy has a lot of things that she wants from her partner and her partner mostly wants things to look like idyllic, right? Like I want it to look like we are succeeding. I want us to look like happy, successful. We have a house, like a 
great kid, happily married, like put together. And in reality, that's just like, no one's like, that's like going on Instagram and seeing like family photos. Like, you know, you get to see that shot, but that's like quite often not the case. So this idea of like, like what's kind of like boiling up beneath the surface of those kind of filtered and like posed and, you know, put together pictures. It's like Monica is feeling all of the pressure to model what perfect lesbian life could be with a child. It's almost like if the family goes wrong, then like, does that prove all of these people right? That two moms can't raise a son well? Yeah. That that she has all of that tension wrapped up in her relationship, which puts an immense amount of pressure on Sammy and Samson to be, air quotes, perfect, uh, to be a good example. But in reality, lesbians are just as messy as everyone else. Yeah. I mean, it's just like you're dealing with human beings. Because mm-hmm. I also, I mean, I definitely think that that is a thing, right? You're looking, you feel constantly viewed like this kind of voyeurism, hyper voyeurism on you to be like waiting for you to fail in this kind of spectacular way, because obviously it can't go right. But then I think there's another part of that too, where there's like, if you screw up, then you're kind of ruining it for other queer people, right? Like you have to be like the model lesbian in this kind of way, where it's like, not only to show people like, look, it's like, we're normal. We're like, just like you, which is an insane way to think of queerness anyway. <laughs> but uh, right. Cause it's like this idea that like, it's a very wild way to think of queerness where it's like queerness shouldn't be contained in binaries. Right. But this idea too, that that you have to be perfect or else like other people won't get a shot, right? Like you have to like not be a problematic dyke. (laughs) When indeed so many of us are just riddled with mess and problems. (laughs) I, I definitely felt that as a more type A, like Monica type person, I really felt for her because she really was trying so hard to make it work. And so was Sammy. But Sammy, but it was like they couldn't get in sync to make things work. They were always butting heads with their understanding of what their family should look like. And I found that really interesting to to see play out in this queer relationship, which is something I never really read before. Most of the relationships that I've read are about like finding love and like that initial like getting together and, and creating your own space and coming into your own. But this is starts past that when they have a child and they're trying to like it's like the post happily ever after. And you come to realize while reading the book, there is no such thing as happily ever after. There's just what is. And that was just very striking throughout the whole book. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, it was a, a book that I was thinking so much about because I was like, quite often I'm, I'm thinking about um, not just writing uh, queerness in specific ways, but reading it too. I'm never as interested in coming out narratives. Um, I think there's so many of them and I think there's so many good ones too, right? Like it's also this like moment where quite often like coming out narratives can go a few different ways. And like one of the ways that they sometimes go is like, right. Cause coming out can be a traumatic experience and like be very much like entrenched in trauma. And I sometimes wonder who like a traumatic coming out narrative is being written for. Um, if it's being written for queer people or if that's being like written for this kind of like mm-hmm. trauma porn quote unquote for like a straight audience, like who is it being written for? And so like 
quite often too, that's like, that's like one moment in life. And and I'm more interested in like the messy in between of like a lived experience, right. Where it's like, what is it like to be queer and like, you know, have or lose a job? Like, what is it like to be queer and like have and lose love? What is it like to be queer and like you are in a long-term relationship and you're like fighting with your partner all the time or like, like, I don't know, like, what does it look like when things are mess, like get to their messiest? And I'm also just really interested too in reading queer narratives about, yeah, about women who are like in a different, different part of life. Cause I don't, I don't necessarily, I think I get to see so much of that in ways that I'd like to read. I think that we're getting more and that's exciting. But, um, I was like, I was like, oh, I really want to read a book about, um, a queer woman who is, um, a nightmare and also a pretty bad mom. So I was like, I guess I can write (laughs) about that and see, because I do think it's just interesting. It's always just really fascinating to see the ways that where people like succeed. But I think it's also very fascinating to see the ways in which people, you know, fail sometimes spectacularly. I think that teaches us more so maybe than the successes is in the failures. Um, And also it's just, it's just always much more, it's so interesting to read about messy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I find that also because most of the queer books that I've read up until this point, most of them cover young people being queer, you know, uh, whether that be in a wide range of areas, you don't really read about middle-aged queer people or like that, these stages in your late 30s, early 40s area where you have the kids and they're growing up. And and I there is like this empty place where those, those stories should be when I go to try to find them. And I feel like this is a book that kind of helps fill that, that space a bit. And particularly, not just that, but also outside of these queer hub cities, you know, you will also want to see what is everyday life like you know, for people who live in the South and are queer and what does that look like and what are their specific complications, like not having a queer community. I think we can see with Sammy that maybe things would have gone differently if she had had a support system in place, but she didn't really know to do that. Like, you know, she didn't really have that understanding of what she might need going forward. I mean, it makes for a great story. (laughs) are going through this, but I think it also just points out as like a critique of, of sometimes how we don't realize that people need help. You know, if someone had just come along and been like, oh, you're struggling here, let me help you, things might've gone differently. And it kind of makes, gets your mind thinking like, what were the different ways this could have gone? It just, I don't know, it started like this whole like thing, like, oh, I didn't realize there was this gap here in this book. This is the book that I needed for that. It's a long way to say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, but I think um, like what you're saying is like so true. And like what I think a lot of like what I really enjoy in fiction is just seeing the the points in, in books, specifically in novels, I think, where you can see this kind of like um, V in the road, right? Where it's like what something can happen one way or this other way. And the way that um, people either interact to help them or that character chooses to continue even with or without help is like really ter- telling of like where the narrative will go in the future. And I always think it's very that's like the the stuff that like makes me like really excited in reading. And in this book, it's like, there were like moments I wanted to have built into the book where it's like, yeah, moments where she makes choices, but also like moments where it's like, 
this could have gone any number of ways. And then like, how would that have impacted all of the things that happened later on, you know, but like, cause I think those like kind of things inside of a household, especially dysfunctional household. Cause I think we can safely say that this is a book about a dysfunctional household. Um, and there's plenty of dysfunctional households, um, including queer people. So it's a household where like these kind of things build and build and like behaviors um, and the ways in which people decide to speak to each other and fights and interactions kind of layer to a point where the things that like at first, if they'd been handled or dealt with, like would have maybe gone away or been communicated in a way that may, even if they didn't get resolved, moved in another direction. And in a household like, like this one where that stuff doesn't get dealt with kind of swept under the rug, or we'll talk about that later, or, well, we're going to put him in therapy, um, which is good. Um, but it's like a, like this idea of like, well, we talk to each other like this in the household. And then since we're allowed to talk to each other this way, then I guess I can talk to you this way. And since you're letting me talk to you this way, I guess I can do this. And still a lot of these like very toxic kind of behaviors are normalized inside of a household. And I think that that's like a very insidious way that behaviors can happen in any kind of like very dysfunctional family and household. And this is like very much like an instance of that kind of like claustrophobia and built in and like decisions being made and choices being made that like layer and layer and layer and layer until a point where it's like not sustain, no longer sustainable, you know, like something explosive or some kind of like reckoning would have to therefore like just happen because it's just reached a point of that's just no longer sustainable for any kind of like, meaningful lived existence. Um, but also in ways in which like, you know, sometimes people choose to, since it's like the only thing they know, like recreate those patterns. So, you know, like maybe this is happening in this household, but then in all future iterations, like, oh, look, it's like, I'm doing the same thing again. <laughs> like I'm repeating all of these kind of things. It felt important to write that in there. Cause I just think it's a thing that happens. Um, and I, I think it's like dysfunction is built into a lot of places. Maybe it's not like that kind of thing, but it's normalized in a kind of way that shouldn't be where it's like, and we, we just do that sometimes, but it felt like significant to be able to do that and have these kind of branching places where it's like choices could be made here and that's going to affect what happens. And it's the choice that happens in that specific moment or how someone chooses to behave or someone chooses to interact or not interact and not intervene or not do whatever that like makes whatever happens later on, like, build to those kind of places, which as a writer is fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, there's this moment where Sammy's hanging out with another swim mm -hmm. team mom and she, she does, she makes a decision or does something. And internally she's like, I made this decision a long time ago. And it, you kind of, then it, it just snapped in like, Oh, this is, this is Sammy's pattern. Like she makes these maybe unconscious decisions that almost like self-sabotage. Like I'm going to, I do make this decision and this decision, but in reality, like decision made a long time ago, that did not make sense. I'm so sorry, editing Kendra. Um, <laughs> no, it does, it does make sense to me. Like, it's like one of those things where it's like, because that that specifically felt like really important to me where it's like this idea of like, right? Like she's there in that moment making a very specific choice. And even in the moment being like, this isn't really what I want, but I made this choice because I built up to it. Like all those many weeks ago when all these things were happening, I like put the wheels in motion and I did not stop them. And there's like a lot of things I could have done and I've been building here. And I knew that even if like, you know, some of it was subconsciously, some of it was a little consciously, you know, like there's like certain decisions to like be made. Um, 
and it is like this kind of thing. Cause it's like, I think she's, I think there's also ways in which sometimes people can be deeply unhappy, but not even realize the depth to which they're like unhappiness, like how deep that goes, you know, like this kind of feeling where it's like, well, I should be happy. Like I have these things that I like want. I have like the things that I need. I have like tools for success. And instead, like, I'm just deeply, deeply alone and I feel lonely and I don't feel understood. And it like ends up manifesting this ways where like, well, I'm going to subconsciously or not like blow up my life because this is like manifested in a way that's like, I feel so unhappy that if I blow it up, maybe if I just let myself blow it up, then like, it'll just stop or something else will happen and it won't be this anymore. But I think too, that people, even people that do that, that like repeat patterns of behavior can be like to a place where it's like, right. They like end up like rescuing themselves or like in this like particular instance, you know, like, does it like change? Does she change her patterns of behavior after this thing happens? Like no, she just like continues like repeating in these kind of ways that are like, designed to like not bring her happiness like nothing that's happening is going to help her um if, if any way it's like maybe like it can like kablam kind of blow <laughs> blow up uh things but yeah the ending is is great listeners will just have to take my word for it because i don't want to give any spoilers but i feel like i was always thinking like man she is such an unreliable narrator and i feel like the end just like you stuck the landing like i was just watching like simone biles do something amazing again i was like it's just like that <laughs> oh nice <laughs> that is like such a compliment <laughs> thank you uh it was like one of those things where i never know like how a book is going to end but that was one where i got to it where i was like i knew it was going to be like pretty quick where i was like this is going to happen xyz boom 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 and then that's going to be the end but even though it's like you're only still just seeing like from sammy's perspective and if it, even if it's pulled back you have there's enough space in between those that you can see between the lines what like what is there that she's not saying and what like you get like a little bit like more of a zoomed out perspective of that and i think that that is um i think that that's like was very fun <laughs> to do <laughs> Yeah, I, I think this is like a great summer read. I like to read about messy families typically in the summer and then also like giant histories. And so I feel like this definitely fits the messy family bill. So if anyone is looking for something like that, would recommend. Normally don't do this when I'm reading a book, but for whatever reason, this stuck out. I began casting people in the roles of the novel uh it just came to mind because you would mention a description of a character just a small thing and I'm like oh that reminds me of so and so so if you were to cast Monica and Sammy who would they be hmm I could see because I really would want queer people to play my queer people Mm -hmm. that seems like really like important to me I could almost see Monica as even like somebody like Kate McKinnon where it's like somebody who is like kind of like fun or like a kind of like more like brash kind of personality but like also incapable mm-hmm. of having any kind of serious conversation about yes. what is going on. <laughs> Sammy is like a little more difficult to me because she just feels a little more like a chameleon. Oh man mm-hmm. it'd be so fun to see her just be like I don't know who do you think because Sammy just feels like such a she's difficult yeah, <laughs> uh, I was like sitting there like, I am not entirely sure what this would look like. Sometimes I got like, if Demi Lovato was a little bit older, that, oh, wow. that they yeah. could maybe, mm-hmm. like, I feel like 
Demi could do a lot of different things, and I don't know what their acting is, is like, but that's just the the brain like that went that direction because I could uh-huh. see that because it's like you have the charm and you have like that that you know I don't know queer femme charm and then you yeah. have like uh then the hot mess thrown in I feel like that could be done very well oh yeah well I love that <laughs> sounds good we'll to go me for it. <laughs> <laughs> just need to call them up now be like okay this is yeah. your new job right, I'll, just them up. I'll be like hey are you interested and they're gonna be like oh of course <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about like southern queer writing and different things do you have some southern queer writers that you love that you would like to recommend i yes so many um (laughs) it has been like especially people from florida um i think that there's just been this beautiful time of like uh female writing in florida and a lot of like queer writing uh takira madden is like her memoir long with the tribe of fatherless girls is one of, I think, the best, like, memoirs of the decade. She's such a phenomenal writer. So talented. Um, I love that she's working on a screenplay for that. That's going to be, like, incredible. It's just, like, I don't know. She writes, and it's also, like, right, that's, like, Boca. So it's, like, more like South Florida. And it's just, like, visually arresting. But, like, also in the line level, she's, like, oh, she has this way of being like talking about the messiest stuff and also pulling out the tenderness at the same time where it's just like deeply meaningful. I am such a huge fan of hers. Um, Prose is out of this world. Yeah, ridiculous. Like, it's like, how dare you? Yes, exactly. (laughs) She's very, very talented. Um, Also, uh, Jakira Diaz, who wrote Ordinary Girls, and that's like such a... I mean, even Jakira's other stuff, like essays and work, like, it's like this look about like, you know, young girl, young queer girlhood in like Miami, but also like uh, Puerto Rico, just phenomenal. It's just like such a genuine pleasure to read their work. Like I, it's like another person too. It's like whenever they have like things come out, I'll like stop whatever I'm doing. So it's like whatever I'm doing, just so I can read that work. There's like, God, there's so many really cool queer writers. I mean, like my, the writer that made me want to become a writer was Dorothy Allison. So Bastard Out of Carolina is like the book that made me, like the first book I read where I knew I wanted to be a writer. I was like reading that in middle school, like secretly, because like my family like would never have let me read that book. And it's just like the first time I saw like queerness but like not like spoken, like unspoken queerness in a book. But also it's like, I'm such a place writer. Like Florida is in like all of my books. It's like deeply a part of who I am as a writer. And that book has like so much of like South Carolina in it. Like it's like South Carolina is a character and like Bastard of Carolina would not be the book it was if it wasn't. Like South Carolina is like touches and guides and shapes everything. Like not even like the characters, but like their behaviors and what happens. And it's like, I was like, this is what I want to write. Like, I want to write like this. So like, I think Dorothy is like just a, I'm obsessed with Dorothy. (laughs) Um, Well, the last thing is you have, I believe another book coming out with Riverhead. Is that right? Mm -hmm, I do. I have a short fiction collection that's going to be coming out with them. It is untitled for now um, because, uh, well, it's just short, like, short fiction collections are so fascinating to me anyways, because it's just like, right, like moving the little pieces around and kind of seeing like where they need to sit. And like, also, it's going to be a different process entirely than doing like novel work. But um, I've also just been like 
finally my brain feels like it wants to like let me write again. So the past few months I've been working on some other like novel projects. So hopefully post the short fiction collection, which will be like um, lesbian domesticity, but also like with some, um, a little bit of the fantastic thrown in. So hopefully that will be good in the short fiction and then we'll see what happens with anything else. But it's nice to be writing again. Yeah, <laughs> I, I've, I, I feel you. I feel like the pandemic <laughs> took all the bandwidth and like there's no space except to like, you know, walk the dog and breathe. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, but I think that's like real. That's like, that's just like, and that's good. Honestly, I think we have to cut ourselves some slack and I know it's hard to, it feels like that shouldn't be the case, but it's like, it feels like a weird trauma to the brain where it's just like, it doesn't want to behave in the same ways that it used to. And I think that that is like, I need space and time, even if we don't feel like we want to give um, ourselves space and time. So it's good to just feel like flex things. And the thing that I think has been good is just to been like, just engage with like any kind of thing. Like the, I was having the hardest time reading even. So I let myself just start reading things that I'd already read like a billion times. I'm like, read something that I actually like know I love, feel like it's like kind of like coming into like a warm bath or something. And like so that way I can remember that kind of feeling. I even like let myself read a lot of like, books that had really got me going like through childhood. Like I reread like Matilda. I reread like a bunch of, cause I was like, I want to remember that feeling of like, just like being completely engrossed in a book, but feeling like that magic that happens when you're like reading where you feel like you're literally transported out of your body into the space. And then you don't want to come out of it. Cause you're like so thrilled to be engaged with worth like that again. So I just like, I don't know. It's like embrace like, tenderness towards ourselves nostalgia that's a useful tool yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much for coming on the podcast i feel like we could talk about queer southern lit for hours yes (laughs) so it's been it's been wonderful and i love your book very excited for it to go out into the world and to attend some of your events so thank you i thank you for having me on this was delightful it was a genuine pleasure to do this And that's our show. I'd like to thank Kristen Arnett for talking with me about With Teeth, which is out now from Riverhead. You can find Kristen on kristenarnettwriter.com and on social media at kristen underscore Arnett. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. This episode was produced and edited by me, Kendra Winchester. Our music is by Mickey Saito with Isaac Green. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at 3 Women. Thank you so much for listening. 